Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. As the kids are returning to their seats, if you would like, you can turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 26 through 36 this morning. I'm sorry, 26 through 38 this morning. I've been typing that wrong in my notes all week. Um, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 this morning uh, is what we're going to be looking at as we continue uh, our look at Advent and our study of how do we wait well on the second coming of Christ. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Most gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your holy and inspired and inerrant word. I ask that you would strengthen me by your spirit, that you would give me words in my mouth to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ as I ought to proclaim it. And open all of our ears that we may hear these words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we considered these questions about waiting as we looked at Gabriel coming uh, to announce the, the forthcoming birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth. We, we talked about why waiting was hard. We talked about, uh, asked the question about what the people were waiting for and why they and we are right to wait expectantly. And we're going to use some of those questions again this week as we look at this story of Gabriel again showing up to announce the coming birth of another child to a woman who, because of a different situation in her life, is also rather surprised to know that she's about to have a baby. Elizabeth was barren. Mary is unmarried and a virgin and a godly woman. And so this comes as quite a surprise to her. But as I said last week, as we work our way through this story of of the advent of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, what we see in Luke's gospel is that that he presents the story, he presents the coming of Christ in explicitly covenantal terms, specifically looking at the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants and presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of those. 
And this week, we're going we're gonna to look and see how he specifically presents the coming of Christ in terms of the Davidic covenant that we just read from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in doing that, we're going to get kind of a, a, a clearer picture, a, a, a finer detailed picture of who it is that the people of God were waiting for. But before we do that, I don't want us to skip over these other two questions of why is waiting hard and why are we right to be expectant in our waiting? Why are we right to wait with hope for the coming of Christ? And I'm not going to go into as much detail on these as I did last week, but, but I do want us to understand why this waiting is hard. We looked at several reasons last week that had to do with the reality of the broken world, the fact that we need to grow and that others need to grow, all of those things. But we see a different reason this week. In verse 34, Mary asks this question. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, last week we saw Zechariah ask a question when the revelation came to him and he was rebuked for it. We know that Mary was asking in a different posture for two reasons. One, she wasn't rebuked by, by the angel Gabriel for her asking this question, whereas, Gabriel was, or whereas Zechariah was. But the second thing is she's not saying, I don't know if this can happen. She's essentially saying, okay, what's the plan? How is this going to happen? It doesn't add up with what I see, but okay, what's your plan? And we see the same thing at the end. Let it be according to your word. In other words, Mary is recognizing in this situation that part of the difficulty of waiting is because what we are waiting on is something that only God can do. And that is nerve-wracking for us. We want there to be something that we can do, some way that we contribute, some way that we usher in the kingdom, something surely we can do. But this story reminds us that that's simply not how it works. That what we are waiting on is something that only God can do. That's it. And that does make the waiting hard sometimes. But there's also, the other side of that coin is there's a comfort in it that teaches us to, to wait expectantly. If we skip down to verse 37, this is, this is why waiting for something that only God can do, while that can in one hand make waiting hard, on the other hand makes it easy because what we read in verse 37 is this, nothing will be impossible with God. See, if we were waiting on us to do something, it's very likely that it would be impossible. Highly likely. If it was up to us to usher in the kingdom, if it was our job to make this happen, it's incredibly unlikely. But we're waiting on something only God can do, and nothing is impossible with him. So we're not fools for waiting for the coming of Christ. We're not fools for waiting with hope for this final glorious redemption. We're not fools at all for waiting for what only God can do because nothing is impossible for him. So with those two questions briefly answered, I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning looking in a little more detail to the question for what or whom were the people of God waiting? 
Last week in, in Gabriel's revelation to Zechariah, we said that the, they were waiting for the kingdom to be properly reestablished, for Israel to be turned back to God, for the pain of the present world to be undone. In the story of Gabriel's revelation to Mary, we get an answer to our question that's a little more detailed about the one on whom they were waiting. And it's important for us to see that this is not a different answer than what we got last week. It's just more specific. It's more specific in how the kingdom would be properly reestablished. It's more specific in how Israel would be turned back to God. It's more specific in how the pain of the present world would be undone. What we find is that the one they were waiting on was the Davidic son. As the hymn calls him, great David's greater son. That's who they were waiting on. We read 2 Samuel verses 1 to 17 earlier where, where we hear from David, or I'm sorry, from Nathan the prophet, that this announcement of this covenant that God was making with David that included these promises of, of a kingdom that would be forever, of, of a child that would reign on the throne forever, that, that his kingdom would see no end. All of these fantastic promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we don't have time to kind of walk through that passage in full detail this morning. I would love to do that sometime, uh, but we don't have time to do that this morning. So I'll just summarize these four points. When we read the, the covenantal promises in 2 Samuel 7, th these are four things that we see. One, Yahweh is going to raise up an offspring from David's line. That's one of the promises. Second, Yahweh is going to establish the kingdom of this offspring. Third, Yahweh is going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And fourth, Yahweh will be to him a father, and he will be to Yahweh a son. Now, there's far more that we could say about 2 Samuel 7. But when we look at these four points, these kind of summary points, and then we turn back to Luke's account of Gabriel's revelation to the Virgin Mary about her coming son, we begin to see very clearly that this is exactly what was happening with the coming of Christ. So if we look back at Luke chapter 1, look at verse 27, we see that, that Mary was a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of, of the house of David. We, we know for sure Joseph and, and probably Mary were both of the house of David. We know from Matthew and Luke's gospel that Jesus was considered a child in the lineage of David. In other words... Jesus could trace his lineage back through Joseph, probably through Mary as well, all the way back to King David, the one who received this promise that a child would come from his line and reign forever. But then as we continue, verses 32 and 33, we read these words. Gabriel speaking to Mary says, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, Gabriel is using the exact language of the promises made to David, the exact language of, of the Davidic covenant to speak about this forthcoming child of Mary's. This kid named Jesus that, that you're going to give birth to, he is the one 
who will inherit the Davidic promises. He is the one who will reign forever. He is the one who will establish the kingdom of God for all time. He is the one who is David's son that will do all of these things. Then we read in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we begin to realize, we begin to put the pieces together. Just as in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, it was said that I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That that wasn't just metaphorical language. It was the very Son of God who would come as David's offspring to reign forever. That's why the promises can be eternal. That's why the promises are certain. Because it was the son, the anointed one, against whom the kings rage in Psalm chapter 2 that would come. That's who Gabriel was telling Mary was about to come from her womb. Yahweh was going to raise up an offspring from David's line and it would be this son born to Mary. Yahweh was going to establish the kingdom of this offspring and it would be through this son born to Mary. Yahweh was going to establish the throne of this son born to Mary forever. Yahweh was going to be a father to this child born to Mary. And he would be a son to Yahweh. Now, in our familiarity with this story, it's easy for us to kind of hear that and be like, yes, isn't it incredible? And miss the, the absolute wonder of the position that Mary found herself in. The absolute, overwhelming, astounding wonder of this situation. Because the Israelites had been waiting, the Jewish people had been waiting for centuries for a son of David. They had, they had worked it in to, the, to their psalter, their longing for this one to come. Psalm 89 is, is this great psalm by Ethan the Ezraite about, about the, the Davidic kingdom and, and the first 37 verses of Psalm 89 are, are praising God for his covenant, praising God for his steadfast love, praising God for his faithfulness, praising God for the kingdom. It's just, it's, it's just the most incredible overflow of praise for the kingdom of God that you can find. But then in verse 38, everything changes. And it changes because this psalm is a psalm of reality. It's a psalm that, that recognizes the reality of the exile. And so in verse 38, we begin to read this. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O oh Lord? 
Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. From what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The psalm that begins with this glorious praise of the kingdom ends in exile, wondering, has the kingdom actually been brought to an end? Were those promises still good? Was God actually going to be faithful? How long? I mean, it's using the the language of this same covenant. You've thrown his his throne to the dust. They're crying out. And this was the longing of Israel. This was what they wanted to know. God, are you going to keep your promises that you made to David and through him to all of us? And and from a human perspective, that was an entirely reasonable question. Because they had been exiled from the promised land. They had been conquered. And as we talked about last week, even when they went back, it never was quite what it had been. It never was quite as good. And here, I think sometimes we forget about the reality of the situation. We forget that the people of God in the first century and for several hundred years prior had been looking around at the world that they lived in and looking at the promises of God and saying, this doesn't add up. This can't be right. We don't have rest from our enemies. The glory of the Lord is still gone from this place. In other words, they felt the same longing that we now feel. We look around And we say, this simply doesn't add up. Can we trust the promises of God? The glory still seems to have been departed from this place. But for the faithful Israelite, for several hundred years before we got to our story, they would have waited patiently for this promised one. And this is why we can go to them now and see how the faithful lived, setting their hope on Yahweh and his promises and waiting for his faithfulness. Though Christ has come, though the longing has been fulfilled in part, we still look around and have the same longing as them. We hear the wars and the rumors of war. We see our own sin. We, we feel the, the disappointment of sin against us. And we just think this doesn't add up. This isn't what I thought a world in subjection to Jesus as king would look like. 
And indeed, this is the author of Hebrews' point in part when he writes in Hebrews 2, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And isn't that the reality that we live in? At present, we look around. And it can be real hard at times to make a case that everything is actually in subjection to Jesus Christ as King. As we look at the brokenness and sin in the world, we know the crooked desires of our flesh that still live in us alongside the new man waging war against the Spirit. We feel the sting of disappointment of sin daily. We live with the longing for the future when all things will be made right, but we're not there yet. In so many ways, we find ourselves in the same place as the Israelites of the first century, living lives of longing for the fulfillment of the promises of God. But we're not exactly in the same place that they are, are we? For while we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, as we read what the author of Hebrews went on to say, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that the so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone so here's the difference between us and them yes we look at this world we see the brokenness and we long for the kingdom of God we long for the fulfillment of the promises We don't see everything in subjection to Jesus yet, but we see Jesus. We see the empty tomb. We see that he has come. We do see the Davidic son who came bringing with him his eternal kingdom. We see that he suffered in our place, conquering sin and death and the devil for all time. We see that Jesus rose in victory over sin and death and the devil, receiving his eternal crown of glory and being exalted to his eternal throne at the right hand of the Father from whence he will come again. We see that together with the Father, great David's greater son has poured out his spirit on his people, equipping us to follow our great king in victory until he comes again. We see that Christ has and does execute the office of a king in subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. We, unlike them, get to see that clearly. And so, yes, we wait with longing. But as we long for the coming again of Christ, we wait under the irrevocable, unconquerable, and eternal kingship of the promised Davidic son who came and will come again. That is the truth under which you live. You have a king and he is conquered. And so you have hope. But I want, to put, I want to put a finer point of application 
on what this first coming of the Davidic son means. On on what it means that, that, that Gabriel came to Mary and said, through you, through the child born to you, the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled and his kingdom will reign forever and he will conquer and never be conquered. And he will be a son of God. I I want us to to think that if this is how we live, even with all of the longing that we have, if if this is the one that we get to see, why does that matter? How does that change our lives? How does that change our thinking now? It's easy to see how it gives us hope for tomorrow. How does that change our thinking now? As we wait... When we feel the darkness of the world pressing in on us from every side, neither the king nor the kingdom for which we wait are threatened. That truth changes everything, doesn't it? As we wait and the darkness crowds in, what we're not seeing is the kingdom of God being threatened in any way because it's secure forever. The king will not be defeated. We don't have to sit and wonder. As we wait, when we see sin and the devil lash out and strike violent blows against the world and its inhabitants in general, or against the church in particular, neither the king nor the kingdom for which we wait are in danger. He's not in danger of losing you or I. Because Satan comes after us. Think about that. You're perfectly secure under the reign of your king. As we wait, when we feel a war raging inside of us, the flesh opposing the spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do, as Paul says, neither the king nor the kingdom for which we are waiting are losing a citizen. Do you hear that? When you feel that war within you and you can't reason your way back to Jesus and you feel completely undone as your flesh is at war with the Spirit and you're fighting, it feels like, for your very life. The king at that moment has no citizens that are in danger of being pulled out of the kingdom of God. Because he's the one that got them there. And he's the one that keeps them there. Yes, this war rages within us, but as the spirit of Christ himself, the Davidic son, the king of kings, who has subdued us to himself, He has done this work. It is the spirit of the one who rules and defends us. The spirit of the one who restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies, including our flesh. Yes, it is this very spirit of King Jesus who dwells in you. And when your flesh rages and roils and wreaks havoc within you, you can know that your flesh will not Conquer the Spirit of Christ. It will not. But He, the Spirit who indwells you, will lead you to follow your King in victory, putting to death the deeds of the flesh as you go. Do you get the joyful glory of this? I'm slow. 
So I'm going to push a little bit further because I feel better if I think you're slow with me. Because we have the Spirit of Christ, our conquering eternal King dwelling within us, being our helper and our guide, fulfilling in us the righteous requirement of the law, giving our spirit and our mortal bodies life, leading us as sons of God, filling our mouths with cries to our Father, bearing witness to our spirit that we are children of God, enabling us, really enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body, helping us in our weakness, and interceding with God when we don't know how to pray. Romans 8. Yes. Because this is the spirit we have been given. When we hear the monstrously hellish voice of our flesh calling us to sin, while it simultaneously joins the chorus of Satan to accuse us, when we hear this hellish voice telling us we are nothing, that we don't love God at all, that we are only our sin, that we are only the sum of our sins, and that there is nothing good in us, we can say, and I say this purposefully, shut the hell up. Because that's where that voice is coming from. And we don't have to listen to it. And we don't have to bow to it. And we don't have to give it a second thought. And we must do this because we're hard of hearing. And just like when we're spiritually hard of hearing, just like when we're really hard of hearing, the background noise drowns out what you're trying to hear. If somebody in our house, I, I, I'm, I've got bad hearing. If, if somebody in our house is doing something in another room, running a vacuum, bouncing a ball, running a blender, I can't hear what I'm trying to hear. And I have to tell that, that voice to stop. It's the same way with us in the Spirit of God. We have these two voices in us. The flesh and the devil accusing, condemning, tempting, and the voice of the Spirit of Christ calling out to us that we're His. Calling out to us that we're forgiven. Calling out to us that, no, in fact, you do have the power to put all of that off. It wasn't a divine joke when the author of Hebrews said, put off the sin that entangles you. That's actually possible for us because of who we are in Christ, because the Spirit of God dwells in us. We just have to silence that other voice and listen to what is true. That's the joy of what's being announced here. That this son who would be born to Mary This son who would conquer forever. This son who would come with the grace of God and bring us into the kingdom and establish us securely for all eternity. This very one has given his spirit to dwell in us. That's who dwells in you. That's who strengthens you. That's who walks with you. That's who helps you. That's who intercedes for you. So yes, we wait with longing like those in the first century. But we wait with longing getting to see Jesus. We wait with longing 
being indwelt by his spirit. That's where we stand. That's how we can wait. And that's how we can wait well. Is by coming again and again and again to the words and the strength of the spirit within us who applies to us the finished work of Jesus Christ, leading us to a place of being justified before God and continually being sanctified in this life. And we wait well when we walk in the spirit of David's son. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you for the surety that it gives us. That we are secure in Jesus. And that we even are strengthened in him to wait well. Because he has come and he has conquered and he has established his kingdom in accord with the promises announced to Mary and the promises announced to David. Father, teach us. Teach us to wait expectantly, even as you filled us with your spirit, the spirit of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.